Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Hi everyone, today we will talk about how we can support our schools, our teachers, our principals and our students, how they can succeed with academic achievements and social development and relations within the classroom and outside of the classroom. And uh, to get good input on that, uh, today we have four guests who are experts in, in the areas of actually of this topic, but based on maybe mostly on behavioral support, but also from other perspectives. But I will let our guests introduce themselves. Let's start with uh, Jen. Hi, uh, thank you, Kenneth, for the invitation. I'm Dr. Jennifer Austin. Um, I um, am a researcher and a clinician in applied behavior analysis. I'm currently at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Uh, prior to coming here, I was uh, at the University of South Wales in the United Kingdom. And most of my research uh, has been Um, in primary and high schools, uh, looking at how we effectively support teachers to implement evidence-based behavior management uh, procedures, whether or not those there are classroom management or individual uh, behavior support for, uh, for students. Uh, and I also um, have interest and expertise in applying trauma-informed care practices within school settings. Let's continue with Jeannie then. Hi, thank you, Kenneth, for inviting me to participate in this. I'm Dr. Jeannie Donaldson. I'm an associate professor at Louisiana State University. Um, and my research focuses primarily on um, improving behavior in schools, in elementary schools and preschools, so usually on the younger end. Um, and in part, focusing on Um, providing students and teachers with choices about the interventions um, they experience and um, making interventions easier for teachers and preferred by the students who will experience them. Okay, thank you. And continue clockwise the way I see you. So let's go on with Peter then. Hi, uh, I'm Peter Carlson. Uh, I'm a psychologist uh, and a speciali specialist in learning psychology. Uh, and I have been working with applied behavior analysis and positive behavior support for, for many years, uh, mainly with students with special needs, for example, autism, but also in Uh, with typical children in, in more uh, typical school settings on uh, both individual level and, and organizational level. And I have also been writing uh, a few books on uh, applied behavior analysis and positive behavior support in, in Swedish. Still just in Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
then Ray. Hey, um, thanks for having me here. Uh, my name is Dr. Ray Jocelyn. I'm an assistant professor at West Virginia University in the psychology department. Uh, my primary research interests are in classroom management and group contingencies in school settings and uh, finding ways that we can make them more feasible or applicable in kind of real world settings. And I'm also very interested in working with students who have histories of delinquency or um, uh, get their education in alternative settings. Okay, thank you and welcome everyone. So let's get started. Uh, I just came to my mind now the word positive. I mean, when we talk about positive behavior support or school-wide positive behavior support, when I talk to teachers, at least around Sweden, they are often very good at uh, noticing uh, misbehavior and focus on what the student can't do rather than what he or she can do and uh, rather than focusing on reinforcing positive behavior. Uh, what's your view on that? Is, is that good or should we do in another way? Anyone can start. So I'll I'll start with that. I think um, it's not just in Sweden. I think that's somewhat universal. And also to be careful to not blame teachers for this practice. Um, we're although it's not ideal for teachers to notice and attend to problematic behavior more so than appropriate behavior, it it's a really natural thing to do. Uh, problematic behavior tends to be louder and um, more noticeable uh, in our world because something is out of order or not how it's supposed to be. And appropriate behavior is easy to miss because if everyone's engaging in appropriate behavior, everything is going as planned. Um, so I, I think you're, what you've noticed, we've probably all noticed as well um, across the globe, but uh, it's something we're constantly having to kind of teach teachers to work against the natural inclination to attend more to the problem behavior than, than they do to the appropriate behavior. Isn't it so that teachers simply are trained that way? Uh, for, for me, it's not only about behavior, it's also about uh, academic achievements. They, they are sort of correct mistakes. It's more focused if you for instance, if I get a new student from another school and they will tell me what I need to know, I don't get, if I don't ask about it, I don't get to know so much about uh, what is uh, the strength of, of the students, rather what is the problem, what do I have to take care of? So I think it's sort of general, but maybe sort of training. I mean, it's, for me, it's, I met a lot of excellent teachers, but are sort of, they are trained the same way. I think they are at least. Yeah, thank you. I think it's, it's maybe they're trained this way, but I, I also think it's a, a more or less a, a psychological mechanism that we are looking for things that is, uh, is not what we are expecting. Uh, we, we expect the children to behave. And if they don't behave, we notice that and we comment on that. So I think it's, it's also a psychological uh, mechanism that is quite natural for us. Uh, but I also want, want to, to, to say one more thing about this, because I think at least in Sweden, many teachers 
they are very good at relationships with the children. Uh, and they are think that they are positive. And I think they are. They have positive relations with the students. But as we don't speak about behavior uh, enough, they, they many times don't use the positive reinforcement, the attention in a systematic way. Uh, so it's different. I think there is a difference between having a positive relation and noticing and uh, noticing positive behavior and, and use the relationship and the positive attention in a systematic way. I think teachers also tend to look at academic behavior problems and the solutions to those problems a lot differently than they look at more pro-social behavior problems or disruptive behavior because we know that if a child has an academic deficit, we're going to have to teach them in order to remediate that deficit. And, and usually reinforcement comes along with, uh, with that teaching uh, procedure that we're going to use to, to help that student acquire that skill. Whereas when there is a behavior problem, our focus is on how do we reduce that problem rather than is there a skill deficit or is there something that I can teach this student to do that will replace that problem behavior? And I think that's a, a challenge that goes along with what Jeannie was saying is it's just our nature. It's not just teachers. We tend to, to notice problem behavior more and think, how are we going to get rid of that problem? But the shift I think that we need to make is looking at those problematic behaviors as um, a skill deficit in terms of appropriate behavior at school. And if we can change that focus, the types of strategies that we use will naturally follow. Yeah, and in a similar vein too, I think one of the other reasons that um, people in general tend to focus on problem behavior. You may see people respond to that more frequently than for appropriate or desirable behaviors because, um, and I think Jen and Jeannie were, were going down this road as well, but the problem behavior, it can be aversive to a teacher or, you know, unpleasant. So if a student's calling out in class, maybe they're disrupting the thoughts of the teachers or disrupting the lesson plan, or otherwise it's unpleasant for the teacher. Um, and so if the teacher immediately responds to that and, and it stops immediately, that actually, from what we know about behavior, that's going to increase the, the future likelihood that the teacher will engage in that sort of behavior again. And so, you know, if you, if you notice and kind of draw attention to problem behaviors, it can, it often has the result in making those behaviors go away in the short term kind of immediately. And so that kind of primes the teachers to continue to, to do that because it provides immediate effects. And the, the issue is, is that reinforcement-based procedures may take a little bit longer for, for you to see those effects. And so I think there's um, a bit of a delayed gratification in the, in the use of these, the consistent and uh, systematic use of these reinforcement-based procedures. They just take longer. You may not see as, as consistent effects and so it's a little bit more complex um i think yeah but then we can agree on that it's very natural that it is that way but if we want to change which i guess we won't how do we make the change if we want 
we know that we want to know, we want to change, we want to have more positive reinforcement. How, how to make that happen then? I think one part of it is is uh, knowledge that that the teachers, at least in Sweden, don't get very much uh, education in in uh, behavioral principles. Uh, so how behavior works? How do the consequences affect the behavior? Uh, if you are not taught uh, about those principles, uh, it's difficult to to understand. How my if I attend more to be, uh, problematic behaviors, they will uh, they will become uh, more frequent. Uh, so I think that is one part. And then of course you need to practice and practice and practice. Uh, so knowledge is not enough. You also need to to practice to how how to to find uh, and get focused on the, the good behavior and not only the problematic behavior. I think that's a massive question that you've asked there. It has many, many layers to it. I think in its simplest uh, sense, and this um, dovetails really nicely with what Ray said, is that if we want teachers to change their behavior, we need to put them in contact with reinforcement for changing their behavior. And it also relates to, to what Peter's saying about if you if you don't have that training and you don't have the knowledge about behavior to understand how what you're doing, though well-intentioned, may actually be making the problem worse, then it makes that job uh, more difficult. But um, putting teachers in contact with reinforcement for doing things differently is an important part of that and providing that support for them and, and not blaming them, as Jeannie said, because we're all just products of what we have learned and what we have, the behaviors that we have acquired to survive in whatever environment that we're in. And classrooms are really difficult environments to survive in sometimes. So, um, just having that support for teachers. So uh, giving them different options of doing things differently and having um, administration that supports those behavior changes. And, you know, it, talk, it, it relates to lots of systems issues that go on in, in schools. I know in my experience, I've worked in schools where teachers have wanted to do better. They want to try different things but the system does not support those behavior changes. So it's not just about how do we get teachers to do things differently? It's about how do we get educational systems to yeah. do things differently? Okay, of course then. So the teachers need good conditions to make the change. So we need to change the system. So how should the system be? How should the school system be to, to work then? I'll throw, I'll throw something out there. Yeah. So teachers have about 10 different jobs really that they have to do on a day-to-day -day basis and so they have and at any at any given point in their day there's about you know there are multiple things that they need to be doing simultaneously and it feels like each year they're getting you know more and more responsibilities are kind of getting put on their plate and so when somebody comes in and says, well, you're not responding to the student's behavior correctly. We need you to do this instead of that. Uh, I think even if a teacher really wants to do that and is motivated to do that, 
it's very hard to do something like that really consistently. And the consistency is a key part to the effectiveness of, of behavior analytic interventions, especially when it comes to like reinforcement-based interventions. Um, if you set expectations for the students and you follow through on them, then you can start to build, you know, trust and there's a relationship there. And those types of contingencies will do a really good job of maintaining appropriate student behavior. Um, and so I think, you know, providing the teachers with with good training and then the support part is is key because if you say, here's this, if you do this, then really great things will happen in your classroom. I'll see you later. Good luck with that. It's going to be very hard for anybody to consistently do something like that if they're not receiving feedback or, you know, maybe somebody watches what they're doing and says, hey, you're doing a great job with that, but you missed this a couple of times or something like that. And so um, providing the, the follow through and supports with helping teachers maintain that behavior change is, is, is just as important as it is for the students, I think. Okay, if I'm talking as a principal, take that perspective, then of course I can sort of help teachers with priorities take away things, say you can prioritize this less and focus more on this and give time. Uh, but how do I give the support? If I'm a principal and monster now, I want to focus on this and I want to give a good support, how should it look like? I'll, I'll just take that one, I guess. <laughs> so I think it's going to depend quite a bit on what the resources that the school has are. So I've worked with schools that have, you know, dedicated uh, behavior team with board certified behavior analysts that they can send in and work with teachers and provide you know immediate feedback on their behavior in the classroom. And then I've also worked with schools that don't aren't um, as fortunate to have that many resources for behavior. And so they kind of need to do things a little bit differently. Um, I've seen situations where they'll have teachers work together and observe each other in each other's classrooms and provide them feedback. Or if there's a, a teaching assistant or a paraprofessional in the classroom, they can provide the teacher with feedback and stuff like that. So I think it's it's a good question and it's a I don't want to give the cop out of it depends, but the the resources available to a school and and what um, systems that they can put in place to provide the supports I've seen just very quite a bit from school to school and geographic geographically as well. And if I can jump in, I want to back up just a little bit because I think, kind of speaking to what Ray was saying about teachers are expected to do maybe 10 different things at once. And I think some of this all starts long before a moment of, of problematic behavior occurs and there's a decision to make about how to respond. And some of this involves, and some of this is also really out of teachers control. I know in the United States, um, there are uh, standards related to how many minutes of instruction students receive per day, beginning in kindergarten. Um, and so we now have kindergartners sitting uh, for prolonged periods of time in teacher-led instruction, which is developmentally terrifying. Um, and so of course we have a lot of problem behavior. So, so I think there are also lots of things that could be done either at the systems level, almost like the legislature level, um, but even at the, the teacher level, 
to kind of build in opportunities or, or create an environment that makes problematic behavior less likely to occur from the get-go so that we have fewer moments where we have to make that decision, um, fewer instances of problem behavior. So if, if you're dealing with problem behaviors happening constantly in your classroom, then it's a lot harder to be consistent in your response to it because it's exhausting. Um, but if we can set up some foundational structures to reduce the overall levels of problem behavior, now I think it gives teachers a chance at trying something new and experiencing success, and then we can layer in those supports and, and those sorts of things. Definitely a lot of layers to uh, beginning to address that problem too. Going back to your question, Kenneth, about what can a principal do, I think that's a really good um, question because in my experience, making changes within a school will live or die by the support that comes from the top. And although the teachers are the boots on the ground and they're the ones that are going to have to implement these things, then knowing that their principal is behind these um, changes and is supportive of them experimenting with different things and sometimes not getting it right. And from a school-wide positive behavior interventions and supports uh, perspective, that when we decide to make these changes, they are changes that are occurring across the school, not just because you seem to have some problems with classroom management, so let's target you, that this positive culture change is something that we want everyone to embrace and we want to work collectively together to share good practices, to try new practices, and to see what works and what fits in our school. I'm thinking, uh, yeah. No. I, I think I will continue there, or, or uh, I think that one one thing that's also important is uh, it has to take uh, you, you you must give it time. Uh, we we have to teach both teachers and and principals to have patience. Uh, sometimes I, I I get contacted <coughs> from a, a principal in maybe in November and. We would like to start uh, implementation with uh, school-wide PBS in January. Can you do that? <laughs> uh, and I always tell them that, no, I can't. But I can work with you in the planning. So I think that we could take that semester to plan. And maybe we could start in August to teach them to, to get patient, uh, do the planning, uh, both with with the uh, um, leadership and the staff, and make it lasting, so they know that it's a work that will take two, three, four, five years. Uh, so I think time is very, very important uh, part here. I think that's such an important point, uh, Peter, because I think in schools. Certainly in the UK, I think this is true in the United States and may also be in, um, true in Sweden, that uh, educators are under enormous pressure to be doing things new and innovative all the time. 
whether it's their academic curriculum or how they're addressing problem behaviors. And so they don't take that time to take the long view and say, this is a process of potentially culture change in our school, which we need to commit to this, not just for this year, because next year we're going to be doing something different. We need to commit to these kind of changes and and, um, look at them over the long term, uh, because what would be really new and innovative in schools is to find good evidence-based practices and stick with them over the long term. And that's what we need to be uh, encouraging schools to do. And the the past couple of comments made kind of made me think of something that I've been thinking about for a while now and going back to the question of how can principals and administrators support teachers in doing this. And, and I think it takes a lot of investment in the preventive stuff. So putting uh, resources into the tier one and two. Uh, so these are these are behavioral strategies that we're putting in place to prevent students from acquiring or engaging in more severe or more frequent problem behavior later down the road. Uh, I think probably one of the most common things that I see um, in terms of PBIS having difficulties uh, gaining traction and and being sustainable in schools is that they, even if they start out with equally invested uh, resources across all of the different tiers, like one, two, and three, oftentimes they'll begin to become lopsided and most of the resources are going into the tier three problem behavior where the students are already engaging in problem behavior and they need, somebody needs to go in there right now and address the problem. And so I think at that point, the amount of effort that it takes from a teacher to address the problem behavior at that point is so much higher than it would be if they had um, preventive behavioral approaches in place before any of that happens. And I think a lot of the time that that can be harder to see or detect for people who aren't right there in the classroom. So I think providing teachers with time, um, resources, and access to implement preventive strategies in the classroom, um, I think that would, you know, like Jeannie was saying earlier, you know, that that would, you know, the uh, implementing the prevention stuff would make their lives quite a bit easier. And I think it would give them more leeway to effectively implement the strategies that they're being asked to implement. Just for people in the audience who's not familiar with the tier one, two, three, could you just briefly tell what that is? Anyone? Sure. Um, I So I've, I've heard them kind of described differently, but generally speaking, the tier one, these are going to be school-wide practices that are designed to prevent um, the development of problematic behavior patterns and stuff like that. And so if you liken it to medicine, tier one practices are like hand washing. Uh, so they're to prevent, uh, I don't know, now it feels weird to be comparing it to disease, but that's kind of where the tier one, two, and three thing came from originally, I think. So they're preventive strategies. And then you have your tier two strategies. And as you move up the tiers, there are smaller groups of students in each tier. So tier one, everybody's getting uh, this preventive stuff. 
Then in tier two, you have some targeted interventions for students who are at risk for um, in, engaging in more severe problem behaviors. And they may include function-based interventions where um, a assessment is done with the student to determine why they're engaging in the problem behavior. Um, so things, there are interventions where they'll kind of check in periodically with a student, um, things like that. And then tier three is a very specific targeted intervention where they've done um, assessments to determine the function. The student has a written plan where they're getting um, very specific prescribed behavioral interventions throughout the day. And it's much more formal at the tier three level. How did I do, guys? Did, does that, you guys agree with that? that? Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to come back to this uh, support system. At least in Sweden, it's quite common that uh, there aren't any specialized staff in behavior support at schools. You have special pedagogues, special educators, but uh, nothing with that education. But I don't think to, to get that is not uh, it's not a matter of money or economy for the school because what most schools they hire a lot of uh, uh, like assistants with almost no education or a little education or training. And for reactive purposes, it could be one student in one class that get one person full time or one person work with two students, but without any training. So I think, of course, if you can't manage the situation, you need to put someone there. It's like you put a bandage there. Uh, but if you could sort of hire a little more trained people, you could have less people. I mean, well, the people you would hire would cost maybe... 50% more, but in the end you would win a lot. So I think every school, at least in Sweden, could could do it, but you need to find sort of the right people then. And to, oh, sorry, go a, ahead. Oh, sorry, Ray. I think you're dealing with a bit of a biased panel here today because I think every single person on this panel would say every school needs to have a qualified behavior analyst working and helping to support and, and guide that, that process. Yeah. I agree that that is, that would certainly be awesome. I all, but I do think also that in, in cases where that's not on the table or it's not feasible mm -hmm. in the immediate future, um, one of the things that, that I've seen be effective is to provide the teachers with some protected time in their day that they can dedicate to um, specifically to you know behavioral intervention or or putting these types of things into place or receiving training, um, because I know in the in the United States that's where my practice is pretty much limited to. Uh, I've worked in a lot of schools that either they can't afford to hire a behavior analyst or there are no behavior analysts that will work in the school mm -hmm. because I think there are a lot of more lucrative opportunities for behavior analysts sometimes. And so they'll have a consultant come in or something like that, where it's, they come in for a small portion of time every week. But uh, oftentimes the teachers are assigned to work with the behavior analyst or something like that. And they just, they're, they're taking time out of their uh, day to meet with this, with the behavior analyst. And then they end up having to make up that time later like after work or something like that. And so I think, you know, providing them with some protected time for uh, receiving training and continuing education and behavioral interventions and stuff like that, I, I think 
uh, has been really effective in the cases where I've seen it. Yeah. If I take my I own, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, Ken, I think your yeah. point speaks to a lot of the issues that we see at, at all levels in school. So it's almost a systems level, like it would save a lot of resources if you invested in like having a behavior analyst at the school or shared among a couple of schools, but there are these immediate fires that need to be yeah, put out yeah. and that's always the case. And so yeah. it requires kind of a, a, someone at the top who is not asked to put out the fire is not in the room where the fire is happening to make the decision to say, we're going to allocate resources toward the prevention end. Uh, not that we're not going to still try to put out fires. We have to, but um, that we're going to invest these resources ahead of time. And then also when you have behavior analysts in schools, just like protecting teacher time for developing systems, also ensuring that the behavior analyst isn't used as the firefighter, because if, you know, then they could spend their entire job just going around attempting to put out fires and not functioning all that well um, for anyone. Instead, better to be working on those more fundamental kind of tier one universal supports uh, so that there are in the long run fewer fires to put out. And I was a little bit incorrect. Uh, I said it it don't, doesn't cost any more money. In the beginning, it costs more because you, you need to put out the fires, of course. And if I take my own school as, as an example, I don't have any behavior analyst, but I have a few persons that are, have a university degree in, in behaviors, at least, so they can learn more quickly and then support. And we have done it a way that we have one, one person who specifically supports with reactive things and another person that only works with sort of tier one maybe tier two they meet the two of them and try to support teachers that any principal can do I think and total silence <laughs> I think that is a is a good system um, to and to divide those jobs up so that you make sure that, uh, as Jeannie said, if, if it's a behavior analyst or a behavior specialist or even teachers that have been allocated some of their time to head up those types of things, that it is differentiated so that they don't somehow end up getting in firefighting mode without really thinking about those preventative strategies. So I think that's a really good model. And I think you're right when people have a little bit of experience or or some people are just very switched on when it comes to uh, to behaviors. I've worked with some of your, your teachers, Kenneth. So I know even though they have no training, formal training in um, learning theory or, or behavior, they get it. So even recruiting those type of people, investing in training for those kind of behavior management superstars in your school and letting them uh, work on those practices across the school. One thing if... Um... If, if we find ourselves short on things to talk about, I feel like we keep coming back to saying how important these more general or universal practices are, but it might be helpful. Some listeners might be thinking, well, what are some of these things I should be doing <laughs> to prevent 
problem behavior. So I'll start with just one and then maybe we can kind of go around and name our favorite. So I mentioned that I work with a lot of little kids and now, at least in the United States, it's not that movement isn't incorporated in lots of classrooms, but um, children are expected to, very young children are expected to sit uh, for a very long amount of time mm. in starting in preschool. Um, and so one preventative practice is just ensuring that uh, kids are free to move at regular intervals. Um, and that will do a world of wonders or incorporating movement into learning. Totally agree on that. Then you got into my oh. area. Yeah. Oh. One that I like is um, oftentimes we see students who engage in problem behavior to escape academic demands. So I'm sure every teacher has seen this before. You have a student who, when they're asked to do an assignment of a of a particular subject or or something like that, they engage in problem behavior. Maybe they uh, leave the room. Maybe they put their head down. You know, they whatever it is that they're doing that ultimately results in them either um, avoiding the task or delaying having to do the task. And so one of the, one of the things that I've been kind of doing a, a bit more recently in my own practice is exploring that um, which makes the task aversive for the student. And so if a student's engaging in this type of behavior because they are primarily when they're asked to do a math assignment, Let's let's look at that. And is it a particular type of math problem? Is it a, the format of the assignment? Is it something like that? And, you know, maybe they just need a little bit of extra tutoring in math or something like that because they don't know how to do it. If you asked me to do something that I didn't know how to do, I would probably try to avoid doing it, too. Um, so just kind of thinking about it like that, I think, is a good um, I don't know. It's not as uh, uh, like discrete of a practice that that you can engage in but it's it's sort of a line of thinking that i think helps quite a bit with escape maintained problem behavior like that well i think that i would flip that as so i think what you described relates to when a particular student is is engaging yeah. in a, a problematic behavior to escape or avoid a task but i think more generally about thinking about the pacing and the level of instruction and ensuring that it's differentiated so that students who are at different levels can access the lesson and contact the reinforcers associated with getting things right and participation. Um, and then, you know, so that's kind of the more universal level. And then if you still have students or a student <laughs> who is unable to access success in the lesson, then and so they're engaging in problem behavior. Now we might move to move them up to another tier to figure out what do we need to do to get this student up to speed. Yes, I think also in terms of prevention, building community within our classrooms is really important. Um, focusing initially on building relationships and emotional safety and trust within that educational space. Um, I also think that 
you know, we need to have the nuts and bolts as well. We need to have clear expectations about what we want kids to be doing in classrooms. We want to make sure that meeting those expectations uh, results in positive and explicit consequences. Uh, and there are some, you know, classroom management systems like the Good Behavior Game that are really, really good at doing those types of things. Um, but I think importantly, in terms of that, that sense of community, there needs to be uh, choice and shared governance. And this, this dovetails with the trauma-informed uh, literature as well, that children are able to be active participants in the learning that is designed for them. So even when we're uh, setting our classroom rules, that that's participatory. So, so kids are, are weighing in on that. Um, to speak to Ray's point about those kids who are, who are uh, very uh, persistent task avoiders, well, another preventative strategy is to provide choice because you're, you're um, more than likely going to choose the more preferred um, uh, way to complete the same uh, learning objectives. So I think there are just so many things that we can do to be proactive around those very core principles of good classroom management, uh, which are setting those clear um, expectations, making sure that we're incorporating uh, specific reinforcement and that we are careful not to keep reinforcing the behaviors that we don't want students to be engaging in. Mm. And I think I, I will, will point out the, the importance of, of good relations between teachers and students. I, I think that is a component that is uh, much more accentuated in the Scandinavian model of school-wide BBS than in the American model. The, the relationship part is, is, uh, is a really core component. Uh, and I think teachers are many times good at relationship buildings, but they don't work with it or talk about it in a professional way. It's just something you're good at or not. <laughs> so to, to make the teachers work with the relationships uh, together, all the staff together have the responsibility to, to build good relationships with the students. It's not just my responsibility. If I don't, if I, I can't build a, a good relation with one student, maybe my colleague can do that. So we can cooperate with it. So the the staff together have a good good, good uh, uh, responsibility, and have to work professionally uh, on that topic uh, and assess it. Uh, how is our our relationships looking with different students? How can we pinpoint the students that we don't that are difficult to build good relationships with, uh, and how can we do that together? Because if you have good relationships, it's much easier to be reinforcing. Uh, it's much easier for the students to really want to behave in a way that we want them to behave. If they don't trust me, if I don't have a good relation, why should they behave? I'm so glad I you have, came. I have to expect, just a moment. I have to light the light here because it's getting dark. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I'm so glad that Peter came back to that because I've been thinking about that since he mentioned that Swedish teachers are really good at building relationships, but then sometimes struggle at strategically using um, some of the other procedures. But to me, that relationship part is the, the fundamental first piece, because if you don't have that, then attempting the other things just feels gimmicky and in, and disingenuous and um is harder and less likely to be effective. Whereas once you've built relationships with your students, then it's it's not just about like reducing problem behavior to make it easier for everyone. It's like, I genuinely want the student to be able to be successful in my classroom and because I care about this student. Um, and so once I think teachers are working from that framework, it it makes the problem solving part easier when you have a student with more severe challenging behavior. And it also makes the, as Peter mentioned, the students just much more interested. It makes your attention more valuable as a reinforcer, as a teacher. And so then once you start tinkering with other strategies, everything works better if you've got that, that fundamental relationship building piece in place. And that's true even for the, the older uh, students. Uh, because with with uh, little children, it's easy to build relationships, but with the teenagers, it's not always that easy. Hmm. But well, it's it equally important. <laughs> yeah. So if uh, every principal and teacher tries to follow all these advices, uh, how do we make it happen and be sustainable in a school? We talked a little about implementation or. Maybe if we can talk about collective teacher efficacy that we want to have, if we get that, we will get a lot of results. How, how do we get to that point in a school? Well, I think some of it is about community building and that's where the role of the principal becomes so important. <clears throat> so if there's a community that all has shared values around building relationships with students and 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 really investing in some of these kind of universal approaches. And then when students have more significant needs, uh, investing in, in supporting those students. So I think that's kind of step one, which as Ray had pointed out, that it's, it's not just about we all agree on these things, it's about carving out strategic time in everyone's schedule to be able to meet, to talk about and and celebrate what good things each other, you know, the other teachers are doing and have an opportunity to look in and say, hey, I think I'm really doing this well. Do you want to come stop in and see what this looks like? Because it's working really well in my class. Or I'm really struggling with this one class period. Can you pop in? Because I know you have an easier time with this group of students than I do and give me some feedback, you know, so building in some structure where there is a community for teachers to support each other and then carving out time for them to do that. And I also think that they need to 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 feel that they can be vulnerable, that they can ask for help, uh, that they can tell that that uh, their colleagues that I'm struggling with this in my classroom. Uh, do you have any advice? Or how do you do to solve this problem? Uh, because I think many times the teacher don't want to. Um, to expose themselves uh, for the, the, the problems that all of them meet. But the, many of them think that it's just in my classroom, I see this. Another challenge I heard from a number of principal colleagues around Sweden 
trying to work with PBS uh, or school-wide positive behavior support is that uh, they are a little bit on the way in their implementation, but uh, the tier one doesn't work. And a lot of teachers or and other staff are asking for tier three interventions. They say a lot of the students need individual support. Uh, when maybe it's uh, the case is that uh, they haven't done their implementation of tier one properly. Yeah. How, how do you handle such a situation? I think, um, and you'd have to be quite uh, sensitive and how you might say this to a school yeah. that had that perspective, <laughs> but if tier one isn't working, then we need to go back and figure out what the disconnect is and which practices aren't effective because by definition um it it should be working to address the problems of 80 to 85 percent of the student population and if it's not then uh we need to tweak that um and it doesn't look the same for every school. And I think what schools sometimes do is they say, well, this school over here is implementing PBIS, so let's do what they did. And it may not appro be appropriate for the culture or the behavior problems of your schools. Um, Ray can probably speak to this as well, but um, as someone who also works sometimes in juvenile justice settings or um, alternative schools with kids who have been excluded from mainstream school because of their behavior problems, tier one often looks a little bit more, it's a much higher dose than it is at, you know, an elementary school in an affluent area. Um, so uh, it's unfortunate that people may have experiences with implementing tier one or tier two interventions, and they come away from that feeling like those strategies don't work. But it's very important mm -hmm. to acknowledge that PBIS is not a set of practices, it is a framework for implementation, and it's up to the school to determine what are those preventative strategies that will work in our, our school. And if you're experiencing lack of success with, with Tier 1, then it may be time to bring um, a critical friend in that can look at what you're doing and, and perhaps um, uh, provide some suggestions for ways to do things differently. And so, I, I, so sorry. But I, I think that what you say, uh, Jen, that the PBIS is, is a framework is very important because I think there are a lot of competence uh, among teachers in, in, in schools. They do a lot of good things. Uh, and many times I think that when I come with uh, with PBS, it's not a component that's are important. It's the, the, the framework and the systematic thinking that I come with. So I can help them to put the strategies they already use in, in, uh, in a systematic way. Uh, and I think that we have to trust the teachers uh, of course, I have a lot of input also, but mostly I have the framework so I can make them use the, the knowledge they have. I think that is an important part in this. And and it boils down to, like you were saying, the framework and the, you know, 
the system. So it boils down to the effective use of behavioral principles, like what we know about why behavior changes and what maintains that behavior. So just to give an example of the kinds of things that I've seen where uh, where tier one will uh, be in place, but not effective. So like one example that I've seen actually several times is where they'll have like a school-wide system where students get tickets or like school bucks when they do something good, when they, uh, that's on the list of, of things that you're supposed to do. Like be respectful to your teachers and peers and things like that. And some of the teachers are giving out bucks left and right and other teachers just don't really do it very much. And so for some of the teachers, it's it's interesting because for some of the teachers, they get to benefit from that tier one um, system that's in place. But if, if you're not kind of buying into it and participating and implementing it consistently, you may not see the same benefits if you're not giving out the school bucks. Uh, and, and similarly, it, what what are those school bucks going to get for the students? Um, there needs to be infrastructure there in place to give those school bucks value. Um, yes, they they come with teacher praise. Some teacher praise is highly valuable, and that's awesome. But I've also seen cases where maybe the bucks are only used to get them access to like a thirty minute pizza party at the end of the month or something like that. And some students have a really hard time going a month and, and thinking about how the, these bucks are going to get me access to that at the end of the month. And so, you know, there are some nuts and bolts types of issues that go along with making tier one work. Um, and that's where consulting with or having access to a person who has uh, behavioral expertise and they can say, oh, um, you know, are you giving out the school bucks as often as you, you should be? Or maybe we should have a once a week pizza party or whatever it is that will kind of increase the potency and the effectiveness of those tier one strategies. Another issue in Sweden, at least, that is uh, mental health among our teenagers, especially. Uh, it became worse after the pandemic, but even before that, it was increasing, I think, and uh, now we have some challenges. Uh, many schools also have a lot of school absence and also like students that they are in school and they perform they have good academic achievements, but uh, they have poor mental health. Uh, do you have any ideas how to to address that issue? I think this is a growing struggle for schools that they're being asked to take on more than just teaching kids reading and writing and um, social studies and, and those types of things. Um, and the resources for those things are, are often very thin on the ground. Um, and the degree to which teachers uh, are qualified to or or should be trying to address uh, mental health issues is is a whole nother um, dilemma to to grapple with. I think that um, because I I'm not qualified to deal with those things. Um, I'm sure Peter will probably as a 
as a clinical psychologist, will probably have some things to, to say about this, but I think it goes back to those systems of community building and establishing a safe environment for students, because I work with students um, who are maybe in foster adoptive care um, or who's uh, are living with their biological families, but those are not safe environments. And school may be the safest place that you can be. And staying in school is a massive protective factor against the worsening of those mental health issues. So I think even without specific resources for treating those types of problems, using things like school-wide PBS, creating those safe and positive environments where both children and teachers want to be can be a massive protective factor for the multitude of things that we find students dealing with in this day and age. I, I absolutely agree. I, I think that the core components of, of PBIS is the same components that uh, you can also find it in trauma-informed care. Uh, clear expectations, good relationships, uh, social skills uh, that demands are uh, not too high, uh, positive reinforcement. Uh, I think the core components are, are the same for, for behavioral problems, for uh, mental health problems, for school absence. Uh, of course, it won't solve everything, but it's the, the base that we have to, to get in place. Uh, and I think it will will help us with many of the the problems that we we find with our students. And and also in terms of community building, um, interdisciplinary collaboration is is I think an underused uh, way to address this type of thing in school settings. And so, um, for example. Te teachers can meet with or speak to a child's therapist or psychiatrist and help them gather information and collect data and, and provide them some you know, information about their student's behavior and vice versa. And, and I don't see that happening very frequently. Um, but when I have been a part of a team that's doing that, I've, I've, I've always been struck by how, how much information both sides are missing out on by not um, engaging in these conversations. It does take quite a bit of effort to find a time where the psychiatrist or the therapist can speak with a teacher or, you know, a, a student's behavior intervention plan team or something like that. So there are substantial obstacles to doing that. But I think in cases where there are severe mental health concerns and behavioral concerns in school, uh, those types of things can really help both sides understand what's going on a lot better and be better equipped to help the student. I think that in in Sweden, quite a lot of schools are, or I think, really good at have this sort of multi-professional collaboration. It's just that sometimes it is a little bit late. It should happen earlier in. in before it's, it's so severe problems. Another question that 
Petris, you or not used to, but you have uh, had this challenge once. If each of you would start a new school, you would be the principal and you would hire the staff. You would decide everything, how what you should focus on. You should have a profile for your school. If you could do whatever you wanted, what would you focus on? doesn't have to be one thing, it could be a few things, but what would be your school profile as the new principal for your own school? You can get like 20 seconds to think or something. I think for me, uh, and I often daydream about this, Kenneth, so um, I'll try to... to um, control myself and talking about the, the things that would be important. Um, I think that for me, who I've been working in schools for more years than, than I care to admit, um, it can often feel a little bit um, defeating that the problems that we were talking about 25 years ago are still happening in education today. And I think what's particularly frustrating about that is that we know we have the solutions to solve those problems. It's the implementation that lets us down. So I think that if I were a principal of a, of a school, the most important thing for me would to be to ensure that whether it was for academics or behaviors, we were always focused on evidence-based practices, that we weren't led by what is the latest fad in education or what is this school doing or that school doing, but we are really sticking to those evidence-based practices and uh, those things that we know will work. Maybe we will have to tweak them or adapt them a little bit for our student body or to, to um uh, for the culture of, of our school, but we know what the solutions are. And at the end of the day, we have to rely on those evidence-based strategies if we're going to make changes in schools. I definitely agree with that. And I'm not trying to dodge your question. I just wanted to follow up on what Jen said. And, and it's, those, it's that emphasis on the evidence-based practices because there are so many sources of information out there that teachers and practitioners and school administrators have access to. And a lot of it is presented in a way that kind of implies there's an evidence-based or, or it implies a certain credibility to it. And they kind of, you'll, you'll see uh, kind of fad things or non-evidence-based practices kind of pop up in different classrooms. And then um, you know, it's it's hard to teach everybody how to evaluate and be able to pick these things out. And so I think having like, I don't know, a, like a group of people or, you know, like a, a behavior team that's kind of responsible for um, ensuring that the evidence based practices are in place, because I've even worked for school districts that do a really good job of emphasizing the use of evidence based practices but still um, it's, it's very hard to know what is going on in every single teacher's classroom um, and, and evaluate, oh, where, where did this come from and, and that sort of thing. And so I think 
Um, there's that part to it. And then there is the effective use of evidence-based practices, because you can take an evidence-based practice and then um, modify it to the extent that it, it maybe isn't the same practice anymore, or you can implement it in a way where the basic mechanisms of the practice are no longer in place. And so there's, there's the is this an evidence-based practice level? And then there is the, how are we implementing this evidence-based practice? And so, and, and we've, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but providing teachers with resources to learn and practice and receive feedback on implementing these evidence-based practices. So I would really emphasize, you know, and I think this, this term may be triggering for a lot of teachers, but treatment integrity or you know, implementation fidelity or procedural fidelity or whatever you like to call it. Um, those are that's a really important thing to to focus on. And I think a lot of the time it it kind of is presented in like a performance evaluative uh, context where people feel like they're being graded or like they're not good at it, so they're going to get in trouble or something like that. But what it really is is we're just trying to make sure that. Um, you're comfortable implementing this and you can do it consistently and we're trying to help. So I think that would be the component. Um, I'll, I'll be working for Jen at her school. Um, and so <laughs> that's the component I would like to add on to her. You'll uh, be co-leading that school then. <laughs> Let's do it right. All right. <laughs> Wait, can I join? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I like... Uh, what Jen and Ray said. I also think um, something really important to me if I were leading a school would be, you know, probably the most important decision that uh, someone in in a leadership or principal type role makes is, is in hiring. So I think ensuring that I'm making the best hiring choices I can, and then uh, promoting a community where there's real shared governance among teachers. So teachers at particular class levels getting to work together to make decisions about what their tier one systems look like or what all of us getting to make decisions about what the, the school-wide system looks like. Because as Ray was suggesting, you know, there are evidence-based practices and then there's effective implementation of them. But there are also a million and one different ways that we can make these things look. And as Jen had mentioned before, based on the school culture, the same evidence-based practice might look actually quite different. It's got the same fundamental uh, things at play, but in practice, the way that it operates just looks different. So I'd, I'd wanna make sure that teachers um, have a lot of say in what it looks like in their classroom and a lot of freedom to try new stuff. So I, um, my job I see as researcher is in part to take old stuff that we know works and see, well, how do we make it easier and more preferred? But also I get to try new stuff because I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm not trying to, um, I'm not necessarily training teachers and stuff. I can just try something totally new because it, has you know some logical reasons why this might be good or better or different. Um, so I think it's important too to let teachers, uh, if you if you've got good teachers and a culture where teachers feel comfortable trying out new ideas, and then a culture of evaluation too. So you can try something new, but we're also going to systematically evaluate 
is your new thing better than what you were doing before? And if it is, let's teach everyone else uh, who's interested in adopting that in their classroom. And if it's not, we're going to toss it and go back to the old or try out something new. So, um, and on a different note, not totally related to behavior, I would also extend the school day to match the work day so that at least in the United States, we have like school occurs during a shortened period, but no one works during, you know, so then we have to figure out all these like hodgepodge of aftercare activities. Kids don't have enough time to run and play and be outside during the day. They get, my kid gets in elementary school, gets PE once a week, you know, so I'd lengthen the school day, but not add instructional hours, but add tons more outside play time, bring sports into school as a regular part of the day, bring music and art and all these things that we seem to have shoved to the side because kids need hours in reading and math, which they do. Um, but they also might enjoy reading and math better if they had more time to play and, and be kids and, and do those things. So my, my dream school would also be a longer day filled with all the enrichment activities. Great. And okay, I think burned a spot in our school, Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> Can there be nap time for the grown-ups? <laughs> Only if you've got data showing that it improves school health. <laughs> Uh, okay, maybe I should. Say, I think you have said said it all, but I, I was thinking about what would you said, Jeannie, uh, about the the hiring. Uh, I think that is the the staff you have to work with, uh, how you hire and how you you keep them. So uh, that was the thing that I because I think that that this the what's threatening. Uh, everything that we do when we try to implement a new a new way of work in schools is the staff turnover every year uh, one third of the staff is new and then after two years it's a new principal who, who comes with his new his ideas or her ideas so how can we keep the staff uh, so we really get the time to implement and uh, give them the opportunity to, to see the success of, of everything that we know works, but because we have seen it, but many teachers haven't seen it. Uh, and if they don't have the, the chance to stay long enough to see uh, the success of, of, of our principles. Uh, so I think that is make the school uh, an attractive place to, to, to work in. I think that was great last words. If anyone wants to have any more comments, it's one chance to get 10 seconds to think and then it's end of it. I'd just like to say how great it's been to, to listen to everyone's perspectives and um, just to, to learn together about all of this, because you, you know, as we're, we're all educators in one way or another, and we're, we're still learning and trying to get better with our practice. So I'm just so grateful to be a part of this group today. Thank you, Kenneth. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I totally agree. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you all of you for a, a great talk. Great chat.